This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Functional bowel disorders are quite common and most often tend to affect those under the age of 50 and cause symptoms ranging from a mild inconvenience to severe debilitation. Symptoms can vary significantly from patient to patient, and the treatment also varies depending on the predominant symptoms. While the exact cause isn't known, there are a few very interesting associations with other health conditions. So today we're going to discuss functional bowel disorders with gastroenterologist Dr. Tisha Lunsford from the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. We'll review common symptoms, the recommended evaluation, and the available management options for functional bowel disorders. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Tisha, thank you for joining me today. This is an interesting topic. Thank you so much for having me, Daryl. I appreciate it. Let's start by asking you to categorize the syndrome because it's not just really one condition. It really has a great variety of symptoms. Absolutely. Functional bowel disorders refer to disorders now of gut-brain interaction that can affect every part of the intestinal tract from the oropharynx to the rectum. So they can involve the esophagus, the gastroduodenum, the gallbladder, and the sphincter of Odi and the anal rectum. All of these symptoms in these disorders can result in impaired quality of life and significant healthcare utilization, as you mentioned, and therefore they are very important to recognize and manage despite their heterogeneity. The most common functional bowel disorders are irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, followed closely by functional dyspepsia. And they are aptly named as they represent alterations in gut function. That said, the term functional is often burdened with bias, hence the effort to move away from this categorization and more towards the moniker of disorders of the gut-brain axis or gut-brain interaction. So IBS is categorized by predominant bowel habit, either constipation, diarrhea, mixed, or unclassified if the bowel habit can't be placed into one of those categories. And uh, functional dyspepsia is also subdivided into postprandial distress and epigastric pain syndromes. So even within the categorization, there's further subcategorization that we try to use to guide treatment options. The diagnosis of these disorders can be challenging because not only can symptoms change and overlap over time, they can also mimic other disorders. So this can often be quite frustrating for both providers and patients. Mm -hmm. Even the name functional bowel disorders implies it's a lower GI problem, but you know, functional dyspepsia is included. It can involve upper or lower GI then, correct? Absolutely. Yes. Anything even up to the oropharynx. We deal with patients who have globus. We deal with patients who have in the esophagus, yes, down to the anal rectum with pain in the rectum or difficulty with evacuation. Okay. So let's go over the most common presenting symptoms, what we may see in our office and make us think this could be functional bowel disorder. Absolutely. So typically these disorders present with some type of discomfort or pain. So that is what defines these disorders. And that pain is usually associated with eating or with evacuation. So if we focus in on the most common or most prevalent, which is irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, we typically will see patients who will describe abdominal pain or discomfort associated with 
a change in their bowel habit. Typically, these symptoms, when patients present to you with these symptoms, they are more of a chronic nature. So there are these criteria that are called the Rome criteria, and these were initially developed to guide researchers, but have been validated criteria that have undergone several revisions. We're now in the fourth revision with the intent to making them more clinically useful and relevant to provide providers with algorithms to help classify patients or to give patients more heuristics, or uh, providers, excuse me, more heuristics to be able to identify that this patient may indeed have a functional bowel disorder and may be able to more quickly take mental shortcuts in order to get the patient to treatment quicker than going through a long process of looking for diagnosis or ordering further testing. The most common symptoms will be within these criteria will qualify that the patient has to have had symptoms for at least six months prior to their presentation and then occurring regularly within the three months prior to presentation. So that is often what we use to gauge that this patient may have a functional bowel disorder, that it's chronic and that it's not associated with certain alarm symptoms, which we can certainly discuss, mm -hmm. and that they have some type of discomfort or pain that is either exacerbated or associated with eating or evacuation. So really the symptoms reflect the part of the anatomy that's being affected. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So other than impacting one's quality of life, and it certainly can do that, is there any evidence that functional bowel disorders actually cause any specific organ damage or even shorten life expectancy? Yeah, that's a great question. And oftentimes that's the fears that the patients are coming with, that something is being missed that could affect their mortality. So the fact that functional bowel disorders are not life-threatening is paradoxically the very reason that they evoke anxiety in both providers who are faced with needing to explain their rationale for ordering or sometimes not ordering more physiologic or structural testing. So as providers, we're usually trained to identify life-threatening disorders like sepsis or acute MI. So oftentimes these assessment and workup, diagnostic workups of functional bowel disorders are relegated appropriately to the outpatient realm, which is a realm that oftentimes in our training, we don't have the most of. We're mostly trained in inpatient settings. When this is relegated to the outpatient realm and when providers are faced with a negative diagnostics that have either been done prior to the patient presenting to them or within their own framework of their workup. This coupled with the lack of provider confidence that the diagnosis is a functional bowel disorder can uh, leave patients feeling that more needs to be done in order to further make sure that nothing is life-threatening. Mm -hmm. So even though IBS is the seventh most common diagnosis seen by primary care physicians, it is not something that is going to shorten the patient's life. And so while we're validating their symptoms at the same time, we have to allay that fear. And that can be very challenging to do. And we often see patients who go from one provider or institution to another looking for mm -hmm. a cause. Mm -hmm. So what is known about the etiology? I know we don't have a specific cause identified, but what do we know about the etiology? Yes. So we feel like there is some research coming that there is probably a genetic component 
obviously have any identified genetics per se, but we know that there's an interplay between gene environment interactions that are important. So proposed alterations in the function and communication of the nervous systems of the gut and the brain, hence that name disorder of gut-brain interaction, that can preclude the patient's symptom presentation. And these may impact motility disturbance, visceral hypersensitivity. There's also the altered mucosal and immune function, altered gut microbiota, and altered central nervous system processing, similar to that altered processing or visceral hypersensitivity involved in chronic pain. So there is felt to be a genetic predisposition and then some type of perhaps environmental trigger, either infection, possibly some severe major life-altering event, or just even treatment or other treatments for medications or other coexistent diseases are thought to interplay in this disease. Yeah, as I was preparing for this podcast and doing some reading on the topic, I read that some patients can develop this syndrome following a GI infection, which I thought that's fascinating. It really makes you wonder if there is something anatomic going on that we haven't identified yet. But Absolutely. Most infectious IBS is very well documented and it can occur in up to 30% of uh, patients. And it tends to occur more frequently following bacterial infections associated with mucosal ulceration like E. coli, O157, and the proposed mechanisms are felt to be, again, mucosal injury and inflammation, even mast cell hyperplasia, some degree of low-grade ongoing inflammation, and changes in enteric neuromodulation and changes in the gut microbiome. And that has helped us post-infectious IBS and the identification to that with, by following patients who have been exposed to a large-scale outbreak of gastroenteritis has helped us to understand better that the disease may have other components related to mucosal injury and inflammation. Do patients who have functional bowel disorders tend to have increased risk of food intolerances? Mm -hmm. Very much so. This is, I find this is, can be one of my biggest challenges as a gastroenterologist because patients often note that their symptoms are uh, the interplay between food that they tend to process the intake of food as triggering their symptoms and tend to less perceive it as their gut is the problem. So even though there is documentation, there is evidence that certain foods, in particular foods high in FODMAPs, which, which I can review if, if you'd like, but foods high in FODMAPs and overeating, like eating three solid meals rather than eating small frequent meals, there is evidence to support that these can exacerbate symptoms of functional bowel disorder. But while that's true, when patients don't clearly understand that it is their gut that is the issue, they tend to chase down different foods. And sometimes this can really cycle into more and more restriction, which has a paradoxical effect of actually the longer I tell patients really upfront that my job is to help their gut tolerate foods better. And there's many ways that I can do that rather than focusing on further food restriction, because at some point the gut actually will become intolerant of food that's been avoided for long periods of time. And it impacts motility, causing further delays in motility. A gut that's not used doesn't move. And we've all seen this where we have a spiral down into even disordered eating 
or avoidant restrictive food intake type disorders. And oftentimes it doesn't help that they have media information coming at them all the time about what foods are good or bad. So they get a lot of mixed messages and they're just trying to feel better. And so I really try to reassure them that aside from foods high in FODMAPs, that really there is not a lot of evidence that restrictive diets are helpful and in fact can be harmful. Do patients with functional bowel disorders tend to have any other associated medical conditions? Yes, absolutely. We all know this when we see it, but other conditions such as anxiety, depression, chronic fatigue syndrome, dysautonomia, fibromyalgia that are also, again, alterations in that pain perception pathway. Yeah. So there's that interplay and connection. And they all have that common between the brain nerve overactivity and uh, all in the same family. Okay. Absolutely. Well, a little while ago, you mentioned alarm symptoms. Mm -hmm. What should we be alert for in terms of thinking, well, maybe this isn't functional bowel disorder? Absolutely. It varies between society guidelines, but onset of symptoms over 50 years of age is generally a good rule of thumb. There are some deviations from that, but typically that is what we look to as the age whereby you should probably further take the symptoms as possibly something indicative of another type of disease, such as malignancy or unintentional weight loss, while possible, is also alarm symptoms. Family history of gastrointestinal malignancy in a first-degree relative, always getting that pedigree is helpful in knowing whether or not the patient might be at risk for uh, cancer is mimicking these symptoms. Gastrointestinal bleeding, whether hematochesia or melana, certainly iron deficiency anemia. Progressive worsening symptoms, it may take just taking a fresh look just to make sure that there's nothing that's been significantly changed that the patient's telling you is different than their previous diagnosis of IBS, which does happen. And then nocturnal symptoms. I tend to nocturnal diarrhea or nocturnal pain, while still possible in severe symptoms, we tend to, to say those are alarm, alarm mm -hmm. symptoms and should warrant further evaluation. Okay. So we're seeing a patient in our office and we suspect they are having functional bowel symptoms. And this may not be a fair question because it, the evaluation may depend on the symptoms, but sure. what is the basic evaluation do we should think about performing in these patients? Sure, sure. So all patients should receive standard laboratory evaluation. So a complete blood count, a basic metabolic panel, liver function testing, and age-appropriate colorectal and gynecological cancer screening. And then from there, additional testing should be tailored based on specific IBS, irritable bowel syndrome subtype or functional dyspepsia category. So an IBS, diarrhea, C-reactive protein, maybe thyroid function testing, inflammatory markers like CRP, celiac serologies can be very helpful, fecal calprotectin, stool culture can be important, and potentially colonoscopy with biopsy. In IBS with constipation, sometimes anal rectal manometry, which is an assessment of anal rectal strength and sensation and function, can be helpful to look for a coexistent or alternate cause to the patient's constipation and pain or bloating. And then in functional dyspepsia and H. pylori testing, for those under the age of 60, you can do that non-invasively with even a fecal stool antigen 
for those over upper endoscopy, or there's a lot of room for the provider to determine to do endoscopic evaluation regardless, looking for an alternative evaluation. Mm-hmm. Well, when patients come to see us, they want to know what's going on causing their symptoms. And mm-hmm. I think they're often told once the evaluation is done, we can't find anything. And mm-hmm. I think that often leads to them seeing other healthcare clinicians. What should we be telling patients when we have not found anything worrisome and we feel they have a functional bowel disorder? Yeah, this is perhaps probably the the most important. If one thing is taken away from our discussion today, Mm -hmm. this would be it. I really start off from the standpoint of a positive diagnosis. When I'm trying to explain to a patient, I, I come in saying, this is what I think that you have based on these validated criteria, these Rome criteria. So I've seen this pattern. It's exceptionally common. I'm very familiar with it, and I'm confident this is what's happening. That being said, it may be worthwhile for us to make sure that there is nothing that is mimicking this disorder. So I I tend to use that terminology, making sure that something else isn't mimicking what I think you have. And then I prepare them by saying that even when we do our testing, it's very possible that it will come back normal. And even though there's nothing wrong with our testing, it doesn't mean that things are working correctly. Because while we are getting better testing for function, like with motility, certainly we're very good at looking inside of the bowel with endoscopic evaluation. We are still very behind in testing for sensation or for hypersensitivity and the gut neural processing and and the microbiome. We don't really know what components of the microbiome are quote-unquote good or bad or contributing to symptoms. So I just tell them up front that all of those assessments are far behind in terms of clinical relevance. And so just because we don't have a sensitive enough test right now to identify the exact etiology driving these symptoms doesn't mean that there's nothing wrong with them. And I explain that low-grade inflammation and overactivity of the immune system It can go undetected at this time. And while this isn't life-threatening, it does impair their quality of life. And this way, we're allaying their fears, but also validating their symptoms. And then the most important thing, perhaps, is committing to partnering with them to find relief. And so explaining that it's like a fire alarm, that their body, there was maybe a fire, maybe it was an infection, maybe it was a certain food trigger or life event, but the body is still sending off that fire alarm. And our tests, all they prove is that there's no fire, but that doesn't influence the alarm at all. And my job is to calm down the alarm so that then the patients can hopefully have more good days than bad days. I also try to see these patients back for several reasons. Uh, One, to see how they're doing based on the treatment I give them. Second, to make sure they haven't developed any red flag symptoms that maybe weren't there initially. Mm -hmm. And third, maybe we've learned something more that we didn't know when we first saw them. Who would have guessed that peptic ulcer disease was due to bacteria? I know. That's a a surprise to everybody. So let's talk about management. How do we manage these patients? Yes. So it depends on the portion of the gut that's impacted. So I will give the caveat that I do try to discuss management in the very first appointment. And the reason that I do that, again, is not only to show confidence in my diagnosis, but I really don't want patients to see 
that any therapies I introduce later or to think that any therapies I introduce later are last ditch efforts. I use this descriptor. I say that the body is in overdrive. And so my goal is to augment or increase their parasympathetic or their digest and rest system. And so everything that I talk about for treatment, I do under that umbrella. With that, I will tell them that sometimes I use lifestyle and then there's pharmacologic and then there's behavioral therapies. So I get that out there right away so that they don't feel that I will get to the point where I expect them to respond to whatever medication that I have, which are current therapies can honestly be woefully inadequate to address all the global symptoms related to functional bowel disease. I don't want them to feel uh, stigmatized or that I am saying, you know, you're not responding, so we're just going to now do cognitive behavioral therapy because that's the worst way to approach it and can seem almost pejorative. So I try to introduce that up front. I talk about strategies to reduce pain. So I actually have been invited to present at our Mayo Pain Conferences, which is such a privilege. And sometimes I feel more at home than I do with GI, meaning that I have so much more in common when I'm trying to strategize with my patients how to reduce their pain with healthy diet, exercise, meaningful engagement in their community or in work, and then having an action plan for exacerbations because my patients are are on the severe side of things and end up in the emergency room, and which is not a good place for mm-hmm. patients with functional bowel disease. And so trying to have an action plan and assurance. Basic things for the upper GI symptoms have usually been tried by very astute primary care providers like acid suppression and smooth muscle relaxants or prokinetic agents. And oftentimes when they get to me, the realm that I go into are mostly for psychopharmacotherapy or borrowing drugs from the realm of psychiatry. Again, not because I emphasize, not because I think they have a psychological or psychiatric problem, but because I'm trying to address those nervous systems that are so closely aligned. The lower GI tract, I try to use advice or recommendations like fiber. And of course, sometimes that can exacerbate symptoms. So I do have, I do tell them that it isn't the fix all for everything. Often they've been told to take in 30 grams of fiber a day, and sometimes it worsens their symptoms if they have motility disturbances or delay or pelvic floor dysfunction. And then also dietary strategies like a low FODMAP diet. And then I move more into pharmacotherapy, which is can be quite complex, but just to, to a broad overview is that upper GI symptoms for functional dyspepsia do not have a single FDA approved medication for their symptoms, which is quite tragic. We're working on it, but we don't have it yet even though we spend $18 billion in known costs in the United States on the condition per year. And irritable bowel syndrome does have some wonderful options for constipation or diarrhea that are directed towards those symptoms and global symptom relief. One management goal I have with these patients is be- because it's so similar to fibromyalgia, I often mm-hmm. treat these patients the same way. I, I, I try to keep them from going from provider to provider. Yes. I say, you've now done a thorough evaluation. You have nothing serious. We don't need to keep looking. Let's concentrate now on helping you feel better. 
Absolutely. And I think that's that's a that's a good approach, and hopefully we can cut down on multiple evaluations of the same sort. Well, well, Tisha, you've given us a lot of information on functional bowel disorders. Can you summarize our discussion maybe with two or three key points? Absolutely. Just to emphasize that functional bowel disorders are not psychosomatic conditions, that there's active listening, as you so eloquently described, to identify patterns and clusters of validated symptom criteria. So not focusing in on the structural issues, but more on the symptom clusters moving in a direction of a positive diagnosis, which does not equal a diagnosis of exclusion. Let them know up front you're confident. And if testing is performed, it is being performed to rule out conditions that can mimic the functional disorder that you believe they have, not to prove that they don't have anything quote unquote serious or life-threatening because you really want to allay their fears, but validate their symptoms. Always explain these disorders to the patient, the rationale for your workup and the reason you're prescribing medications, being very clear that it's not a pharmacist that is the one that tells your patients that the medication you're prescribing is for anxiety or depression. You need to be the one to do that and to explain that that's not what you're treating necessarily, that you are really treating the other nervous system or the gut. And then I really try to emphasize that these disorders are heterogeneous. We are going to have care goals rather than cure and that we can't fix everything and that they don't have to have a unifying diagnosis or one fits all treatment that we're going to try to focus on having more good days than bad days. We've been discussing functional bowel disorders with Dr. Tisha Lunsford from the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Mayo Clinic. Tisha, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.